this is Dr. Scott Vigay from Orlando at the Gallifrey Convention. This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Doctor Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you company. Thanks for taking the time to download this file. This week we've got a very, very special treat for you here in the DWP Camper Van. Uh, we've had Gareth Roberts, who amongst his uh, other Doctor Who and Doctor Who related spin-off uh, achievements and extraordinary feats, has produced a novelisation of, uh, I suppose what one might call, The Lost Story from the uh, classic era, Sharda. Gareth, welcome to the Doctor Podcast. Hello, Trevor. Hello, everybody. Now, I, I suppose for the benefit of the listeners who, who might be listening to this and going, Sharda? What's Sharda? Lost story? What is Trevor going on about? Perhaps you can uh, give, give the listeners a brief description of um, what this Sharda thing is all about. Sure. Um, what happened was in um, 1979, they were making the um, 17th series of Doctor Who, and Douglas Adams um, was their script editor. Um, and he... Um, uh, basically wrote the six-part story that was meant to be the what we would now call the season finale. Um, all the others were four-parters. This was a six-parter, so it was big. And they went into this... Uh, they did some location filming. They did some studio recording. And then there was a strike at the BBC, and they got locked out of the studio. <laughs> um, and there were, and um, it was around Christmas time, and they couldn't get back in, basically. The actors were all out of contract, and... Um, um, the studios were being used for Christmas specials and things like that. So um, basically, we what we had here was a Douglas Adams script for Doctor Who, which was which was never completed. That's right, and and it was to form the the end of Graham Williams' last season as producer. So I suppose yes. his his yeah. year ended on a little bit of a sad note because despite his. Uh, best efforts and the production team's best effort, they just couldn't get it up and running again. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think they had problems um, the previous two years as well. Um, similar problems, but they managed to get over them. I know that when they were doing um, Underworld and the Invasion of Time um, a couple of years before, that both both those stories were nearly scrapped. It was it was one of those things about Britain in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. There was a lot of industrial action and, uh, uh, you know, lots of TV strikes. I mean, people of my age can remember TV channel was off air for about two or three months over the summer of 79. Mm. Um, so it was, it was you know, a, a, a typical product of the time, really. It just seems a crazy thing to think of these days that, like, your TV could be turned off or there could be no channel at the um, other end for, like, months <laughs> months on end. We had a BBC News strike a few um, months ago, um, but that we we really couldn't tell any difference. It was just like um, there, were, there were different people reading the news. It, it didn't seem to um, have any recognisable impact. But in those days, yeah, it was everybody out and they all went out. Well, your novelisation of Sharda um, adds to a very, very long list of um, heroic attempts to yeah. <laughs> capture the flavour of Sharda in yes. whatever form it may be. I mean... Yeah, uh, it's been it's been finished more times than any other story, really. Lots of people have had a stab at it. I mean, I, I yes. remember years and years ago, even before the um, official BBC VHS came out, 
fan and sat down with a Commodore 64 computer. Oh, yes. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he had the footage and he yes. bridged all the bits that weren't there by lots and lots of pages of very closely typed text. Seems to be a story that's got this, I suppose, mythical quality that lots of people want to have a stab at because he's had a stab at it. The BBC have had a stab at it yeah. with, with uh, Tom Baker's help. Um, yeah. The uh, BBC have also had another stab at it by recasting Paul McGann in the role in an animated version. And now we have you with the uh, novelization of Shadow. Yeah, I mean, the lucky thing for me was that um, I could sort of run with um, all the versions of Shada that there were, um, as it were, from from the time, from, from 1979. There were, I had earlier drafts, later drafts, rehearsal scripts and things like that. Mm. Um, so I had more material to work from. I mean, the um, there was a little blue book um, of scripts which came with the VHS uh, release, which is actually, I think that's that's not the shooting script. That's um, uh, that's a couple of uh, drafts earlier, mm. um, and you can tell that very easily. I mean, it's what what was shot doesn't match up with what's in that book. So you know, there was quite hefty rewrites. And also during the rehearsals as well. So I had all of that stuff. What what I got was uh, PDF files of um, the handwritten annotations that had been made by the director. Um, so every time a scene was changed, he'd write down the new dialogue. Um, and they rehearsed all of it, even though they didn't get into the studio for the, the second and third block of studio recording. They rehearsed all of that in the time they would have been shooting it. So I got all those changes as well, which I don't think we've really seen before. The Doctor pedalled furiously through the twilight streets of Cambridge, an ancient and dangerous Gallifreying artefact of potentially terrifying power, sitting rather casually in the woven wicker basket attached to the handlebars of his bike. The Doctor rounded a sharp corner emerging onto one of the footbridges that crisscrossed the cam, tingling his bell to clear the way, though there was nobody to be seen. It did add a much needed sense of urgency, he felt. Suddenly, as the doctor's bike started up the cobbled incline of the bridge, he saw a man striding forcefully in his direction. As the man reached the crest of the bridge, he stopped and stood still, right in the doctor's path. Even a barrage of irritated teens wouldn't get him out of the way. The doctor had no choice but to brake hard, wobble a bit, and slither to a halt a few feet in front of the fellow. He was a tall, slender, fair-haired man, wearing ordinary earth clothes of the period, which didn't seem to quite fit him. In one hand, he carried a large carpet bag. By the sodium glow of Cambridge's municipal streetlights, the doctor stared hard into the man's eyes. They were cold, icy blue, with an almost staggering condescension behind them. Otherwise, his face was blank, lent a slightly sinister note by what looked like a duelling scar across the left cheek. I'm terribly sorry, am I in your way? Or are you in mine? The doctor inquired. The stranger ignored the remark. It's just that I'm on a rather important errand and... Doctor, the man said simply and emotionlessly. The doctor blinked in surprise. Though it's terribly flattering to be recognised, he said, spreading his arms in apology. I simply don't have the time for autographs right now. His tone changed, suddenly serious. But if I did, who would I be making it out to? The man's eyes never left the doctor's. I am Skagra, he stated. I want the book. The Doctor smiled broadly. Well, I'm the Doctor, and you can't have it. How did you get the opportunity to, um, I, I suppose, step into Douglas Adams' shoes? Well, those are, those are big shoes to step into. Um, 
yes, the first time I got a call about it was years ago. I was in Cambridge, and I think it was the first time I'd ever been there. And bizarrely, I got a call saying, would you like to do Sharda? And I was actually in Cambridge. I was literally looking where uh, Tom and Lala filmed the scene of the punks. So that was bizarre. But then that all quietened down. We didn't hear anything more about it. And then a few years later, I got another call. And this time I was in Paris, which was bizarre. And (laughs) And I said to Clayton, who's my flatmate and a dear friend and sometimes writing partner, um, who was with me at the time, I just said, my God, is this city of death? What, what's going on? <laughs> um, so I'll have to go to Zanac the next time, I think, to get um, to get another offer like this. But yes, no, I sort of jumped at it, really. I thought it would be a very easy job, and it wasn't. It was a very, very, very hard job. I sort of felt the weight of expectation from people. This is why I'm glad it's been so positively reviewed so far. Been out two or three weeks, and I think I've only seen like one slightly negative review or, or internet posting or blog posting or whatever. So I'm um, I'm very very pleased with the way it's gone down because it was such a hard job, just sorting out and behaving and trying to do Douglas justice, basically. That's the question I was going to ask you too. Where does the line get drawn? How how much of it becomes a homage, but how much of it comes from the realization that you have to. I suppose, update it and include stuff that maybe not have even been in, in the original televised recording. What I tried to do was not take anything out, but put lots of stuff in. I mean, I, the script had been written very, very quickly um, by Douglas, um, literally over a few days, I think, um, because of uh, he wanted to do another story. Um, he was holding out to do a story about the Doctor retiring. Um, and Greg right. Williams, producer, said, no, you're not doing that. And Douglas kept holding out as thinking, you know, he'll give in. And he didn't give in. And in the end, that meant that Douglas had, you know, a week to come up with the first drafts. I knew that Douglas hadn't been that happy with it. And he had gone on to say, oh, he was glad that it had been, um, it wasn't completed because he hadn't been happy with it at all. Right, right. Um, so what I wanted to do was to take a look at all those brilliant ideas and brilliant lines and, and brilliant characters and I sat down with Clay, uh, my flatmate, and we kind of um, read through the scripts and just tried to sort of figure out how it all worked, how the, how the plot could be made to make sense. I, I think with a television script, you can get away with more. You can swerve things. And it was there were several big sort of, bigger than normal, I think, actually, plot holes in it. Um, and Douglas had said that himself. So I, you know, I, I sat down with Clay and we, we sort of, played around with the um the logic of it to to sort of bash the plot into shape it's interesting that you talk about i suppose filling those holes and you know sort of plastering over the gaps because my next question to you is going to be what sort of audience do you write these novels for do you, do you write it for the fan that may have been sitting there in front of their tv in 1979 waiting for Sharda to come on or do you write it for someone that has no exposure to, to that era of Doctor Who? Like um, a for everybody, really. Whenever I write Doctor Who of any kind, you know, TV, whatever, I think it's a very, very mass appeal show. You know, that was what it was designed as 50 years ago. It was designed to grab everybody. You know, it was th- there to fill a scheduling gap between sports programmes and sort of teenage programmes. It was like a family serial. So I've always uh, thought that it was at its best when it did sort of include everybody and, and grab everybody like it does now. That's sort of what I went for, really. I, I, I wanted it to be comprehensible to anyone. That Even if you'd never, you know, which is very unlikely, heard of Doctor Who, but you're a big Douglas Adams fan, 
you could pick it up and, and understand it. There are sort of continuity references and things like that in it, but they're more sort of as a sort of flavoring, if you know what I mean. I think mm, mm. sometimes if there's something there that you could use, do you think, well, why should I bother making up a new thing if that thing fulfills the role? I think when uh, Russell Davis was doing Gridlock on TV, he said to me, you know, he'd been writing the story and originally it was just like a sort of generic monster that lived in the, the old tunnels down beneath the city or whatever. And then he just thought, well, you know, they're feeding on gas. There needs to be gas in this story. Why don't I just make it the macro? <laughs> Why not indeed? <laughs> I think that's, the, 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 that's, that's how those things come about. You know, if you've got something you might as well use then you might as well use it really i mean because i've never been too keen on looking at the history of the time lords or time lord society but shada was very much about that um so again me and clay sat down and watched lots of the time lord stories and tried to sort of form an idea of what that society was like i'd like to think too that when uh, justin commissioned you for the book he'd, he'd actually read some of your previous oh yeah, uh, of course. Ver- yeah virgin yeah. missing adventures because yeah. um I, I remember reading Romance of Crime many, many years ago, which which uh, features the Doctor and Romana, and thinking this captures the essence of the era and the characters so perfectly. I actually felt like this was a televised adventure. So I mean, I, yeah, they, I, couldn't, they couldn't have afforded it, I don't think. But uh, <laughs> but other than that, yes, I know what you mean. It was I was about eleven or twelve when those were going out, and that's a very sort of receptive age. You know what I mean? You're sort of that's sort of what's a lot of the things that go into your head when you're sort of just becoming a teenager. Things that stay there forever, you know. Um, I found that I sort of found myself in sync with that. But again, you you don't know whether it's the chicken or the egg situation, you know. Um, was that appealing to me because I was that kind of person or am I that kind of person because that appealed to me? there's any place in the Doctor universe for, I suppose, a return to adult fiction? Like, mm. is there a place there for Doctor Who novels written for adults anymore? Yes, well, there's there's the Michael Moorcock and um, uh, Dan Abnett's done um, some hardback stuff. So I think that is there. And also, I mean, you know, some of the new adventures, missing adventures were, I guess, more adult. And a lot of people liked them. A lot of people didn't like them as well, and they were very vocal about it. Mm. <laughs> um but a lot of people love them. So I don't know. I think there probably is a, a sort of market there for that. I mean, I, as I say, I sort of prefer the, the sort of catch-all approach. Even when I was writing those books in the 90s, when Doctor Who was sort of at its sort of, certainly in this country, it was sort of quite at, it, at its nadir in terms of sort of public mm. uh, estimation or whatever. I sort of pretended when I wrote those books it was a huge success. Um, and, <laughs> um, because I, I thought that was when, you know, I... I I think the more culty things become, um, the less interested I am, you know. Mm. But then again, you look at some of those um, American genre shows and they're very involved, very um, very rewarding for a dedicated adult viewer. But I don't think, you know, as I said before, you know, Doctor Who wasn't designed to be that. And I think it's better when it's sort of doing the thing it was designed to do, which was to sort of capture everybody. Am I sort of hearing a sort of a roundabout criticism of the modern series, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not criticising myself. No, no. Oh, God, no. I mean, the, the modern series is exactly what I mean. I mean, it's, um, it's it, actually, Douglas had a wonderful quote, which everyone thought he was being flippant about, which he said that Doctor Who has to be complicated enough for children and simple enough for adults to understand. 
And I think there's there's something actually very true in that, that I know that people were saying, oh, you know, the kids won't understand it. And actually the kids did understand it last year better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of got um, a lot of the things before adults did. And again, it goes back to that thing I was saying, you know, when I was 11, 12, or even younger, I was so involved in those plots and working them out. So sometimes it's quite fun to play at the the complication because I think that's, I mean, look at Harry Potter, it's so dense and complicated. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the ratings have stayed so incredibly high and children, you know, completely love it. I think Stephen and co, which includes myself, are doing exactly the right thing, yeah. Mm. You've you've certainly written plenty for modern Doctor Who, of course. So yeah. I, I suppose it's a bit churlish of me to say that you didn't like it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, it it was amazing when I was looking up your uh, I suppose stats. You 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 you've actually written more scripts for Doctor Who than Mark Gatiss has. I mean, you're right behind uh, Russell behind T Davies and Stephen Moffat in the old uh, writing yeah. ladder. So yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 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 number three on the chart. <laughs> I recently discovered, I didn't know, but it was pointed out to me, that I'm the only person that has written for Doctor Who on TV, comics, audio, the stage, books. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm the only person that's done every medium. <laughs> so that, that makes me unique. Can't you just stick to one thing and be good at that? <laughs> um, it's, just, it's just been nice to sort of move around, actually, and to sort of um, do these different things. So has has have one success led to another, or is it just a case of falling into the next job and being just incredibly lucky? Well, I think if you're incredibly lucky, um, I don't know. I'm not, I, I think um, uh, people like my stuff, I guess, and um, I'm I'm good. <laughs> Rivers in the TARDIS, the TARDIS is on fire. She's feeling the heat on repeat. She'll require someone she can trust, someone with a bow tie, but he's been locked up and left to die. What was your favourite Doctor Who script to do? It's either the Lodger or Closing Time. I don't know which, really. Also because the, the story of the Lodger came from me. It was originally a comic strip, and Stephen really liked it. And Russell really liked it too, but he couldn't sort of find a slot for it. But it was one of the first things that Stephen talked to me about when he took over from Russell. I always thought it was a really good idea, and it was one of the first ideas that came into my head when, when I was first reading the scripts of Chris Eccleston, Rose and Mickey. I think that one, at the, so far is my favourite. So I suppose if someone was to ask you the way you approach writing a script for Who, it's more about the characters than the story? I've never understood the difference when people talk about this. I can't, I can't, when people say, oh, is it character-driven or plot-driven? I just don't quite know what they mean because for me it's like a a sort of symphony. It should all be, uh, you know, the characters influence the story and the story influences the characters and you can't really pull them apart, really. Mm. Certainly when... You look at the stories you've written and, and certainly the lodger in closing time, they're more about the people that inhabit that world rather than any story that might be wrapped around those characters. Um, I suppose, but then if you didn't have the plot, you wouldn't have the characters. So I can't really pull them apart. I mean, I think that ideally you wouldn't be able to point at something and say that's character-driven or that's plot-driven because there are so many different kinds of plot and a Doctor Who plot can be technical and it can be emotional. It can rely on somebody making a decision or a character coming to a realisation or something like that. But mm. it's it's hard for me to say, really, because I, for me, a lot of it is so instinctive that I can't even begin to analyse it. Um, 
because I've been, you know, I was writing Doctor Who stories in pads and things from the age of about five or six onwards. Um, so I find writing quite, it's like sometimes when writers say things like, oh, my character surprised me or, or did that or something, then I, I don't quite understand what they mean. I, um, for me, it was mm. always something that I had to do that, you know, there was there was a pen, there was some paper. And I just had to do it. So maybe a lot of those uh, sort of analyses were done when I was very, when I was a small child. And I don't remember that. <laughs> well, for what remember. it's worth, I think you're a character driven writer. Most oh, right, good, right. Because <laughs> if, if we bring it back to Sharda and if we bring yeah. it back to the person who wrote it, of course, Douglas Adams, in his Hitchhikers novels, for example, it's not about the story. It's about what happens to the characters. And it's um... the characters, I think, that people really remember from his books. Yeah, but there's a lot of situations in a lot of satirical stuff, I think, in, in, in Douglas's work that also resonates with people. You know, I mean, um, a lot of the situations the characters find themselves in, like the restaurant or the disaster area ship or the trattoria or something, they're so clever. Um, and they're brilliant situations which he then puts his characters in. So I think he is a good example of somebody, if you like, that, that, do, that does both and you really can't, can't see the join. You've been involved with the uh, Sarah Jane Adventures. In fact, you wrote the uh, pilot with RTD. How much of it is yours and how much of it is, I suppose, Russell T Davies' baby? Oh, well, um, well, I mean, sadly, you know, the show is no longer continuing, but it was always oh, Russell's idea. He'd just been so impressed by Liz, as we all were in school reunion. We met up uh, for a, a lunch in Manchester and Russell kind of spelled out the basics for me I then wrote an outline and we just went from there really so you know it's Russell's show he came up with the characters and the situations and everything I think by writing that first story with him then obviously I had quite a large input into the sort of overall tone of it but it, it was weird again we didn't we didn't talk about that show a lot before we made it it was quite quick um, usually when you start up a new series, you're sort of debating the tone, you're debating you know, what kind of show is it, you know, what is it a warm show, is it a, in, you know, is it, is, it, is it a clinical show, is it, and and for some reason, maybe because of just because of Liz herself, it sort of felt very right from the very beginning, really. It, it had a warmth and it had that kind of family atmosphere and we didn't even ever really talk about that. Um, it just seemed to happen. Well, we've put the whole plot-driven, character-driven thing to bed now, I yeah. hope now. But yeah. one, one, one thing I wanted to ask was, is it more difficult to write for a target audience that I suppose in many respects would be at least five or six years younger than a, than a uh, typical Doctor Who audience? Um, well, they're included in the Doctor Who audience, but they're not the only part of the Doctor Who audience. That's the, that's the difference. We're, I mean, on Doctor Who, we're always saying, you know, I'm six, do I understand this? Or I'm six, am I bored by this? What are they talking about? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. But with, with Sarah Jane, oddly, it goes back to that thing I was saying that Douglas said earlier. In some ways, it was a more serious show than Dot 2. I mean, I, I remember writing episodes that barely had a joke in them because I think children love to be taken seriously. You know, if you watch the you know, Harry Potter stuff or the really successful children's stuff, it doesn't trivialise emotions. It doesn't trivialise life because children, you know, they're, they're little people. They, you know, they, they've, they've got all the um, emotional equipment. They can see what's happening around them. They're often involved in emotional traumas with their parents or school other school children or teachers or whatever. So I think, you know, a sort of daffy show where everything's a bit silly and people throw custard pies at each other, you know, <laughs> never works as well for children. Something that takes them seriously. So although, you know, we did have 
you know, gunge occasionally and Sarah Jane and things like that. It was earned gunge, if you know what I mean. I mean, I remember as a kid cringing when, you know, you saw adults talking down to you or trivialising things. And, you know, we, we did we tackled some really big things in Sarah Jane, you know, like deaths of school friends or being cursed and made homeless and things like that. You know, mm. I think children love that. I certainly love that kind of thing when I was a kid myself because I felt, oh, my God, I'm being taken seriously. But particularly because the age range sort of cut off about 12 um, for children's TV. It had originally sort of been a bit over that, included teenagers as well. But mm. by the time mm. we were doing Sarah Jane, the BBC had sort of dropped that. We were keen not to make any kind of too many overt romantic plots, although that did start to catch up with us. But because kids just aren't really terribly interested in that, I think, if, until they're about 12, 13. That, that's the sort of only thing we sort of shied back from. But you have to be careful, you know. It's not You don't want to give people screaming nightmares. If we played a um, any kind of story, we played it seriously, even if it was quite fun to play, we just wouldn't trivialise it. Yeah. Because you, you are responsible for, I suppose, some of the more warmly remembered stories from that run. Um, certainly the episodes which have Sarah Jane's name in the title are the one that oh, yes, delves yeah, into yeah, yeah. Um, her backstory and her history. And I, I yeah. suppose tried to build upon what we know of Sarah Jane as a person. I mean, that was inevitable, really. I mean, we, we did the other characters as well. But I mean, you know, Liz was the star of the show and it was just very interesting stuff to go into. And we knew she'd always deliver. There was always an element of sort of heartbreak about the character and, you know, terrible things happened to her, but she always bounced back. That's kind of the way we approach that. No, she'll uh, certainly be a talent that will be uh, sorely missed, unfortunately, because, yes. I mean, I think we were certainly at a time where we would have thought that the Sarah Jane Adventures would have gone on forever and, you know, sort of Elizabeth Sladen would have been happy to do it until someone told her to leave, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yes, which would never have happened. So, yes, you know, <laughs> There were plans, but, you know, that's the way it happened, you know, very sadly. Very, very sad. Have you been surprised sometimes at the uh, critical reception to some of your work out there in the fan community or... Um, um, well, I don't, I don't really thoughts? know about the, the fan community, really, because I don't really look, to be honest. Um, in terms of television, you know, you get a good audience, you get a good AI and things like that. And and um, you're aware that there's a huge fan community out there that everyone has a completely different opinion of everything. Mm. And they're all quite sparky and lively and everything. And I know that because I am a member of that community still, you know. Um, so, but but no, I've, I've, I, don't, um, I don't assiduously sort of see what, people think generally i mean um with the advent of twitter and things like that you know um people can sort of contact you directly to say they enjoyed something and that's nice um yeah i, I don't really know <laughs> so how, how i mean with like like you say with the advent of social media and stuff like that and yeah. people basically being able to knock on your front door pretty much um <laughs> how many toes have you dipped in the water with regards to being involved in that whole i suppose social media experience um, well, I mean, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. I mean, that's about it, really. I suppose what I was trying to get at was because you, you were kind of saying that maybe the experience can be a little bit poisonous sometimes. It can be, but there, there can be. But I mean, that's the same of any kind of group of people that are in a group of people. You know, I mean, if you look at any kind of social grouping, whether it's a political party or, you know, a, a golf club, 
you know there's always going to be that because that's just the way people are you know it doesn't i don't think it's a particular thing of of doctor who fans mm. and also it's a tiny tiny proportion of people that are like that you know really really small i mean when, whenever i've come into contact with with people they've always been really nice so I, I don't sort of regard it as a big thing you were also involved i mean when when i was looking some of this stuff up i was surprised to learn that that you wrote the uh, tardisode back for uh, season two the uh, little i did yes yeah i yeah. suppose teaser two or three minute yes, episodes yeah. that went out before each of the main episodes yes they were they were quite hard to do actually because it depended on what access you had to set to what you could afford or what you could do looking back on it you know it's um that seems to be one of those things at the time you know I don't think we even had YouTube then, um, to be honest. <laughs> um, I think um, so. Um, it was, you know, people were experimenting, and I remember saying at the time, you know, this is like the early days of, of silent movies or something. We we don't know what this technology is going to do. We don't know what people are going to do with it yet. And as it turned out, you know, you can you can have a prequel scene or something like that, but it's so much easier. They do it now. It's so much easier to just put it on the web. Rather than which, rather than sort of download it as a special separate thing to, to you know to view on your phone, you know it was. Yeah. Um, um, so I think that was that was a that was the age of experimentation. We're still doing it now, you know. Who knows what another technological uh, thing will come along, you know? Must and be very very difficult to, I suppose, produce a Tardisode that's I suppose interesting but doesn't give too much away about the main story because i mean you don't want to be spoiling yeah, too mean, much was, for the viewer I sort of viewed them as like the prologues that terence sticks used to add to a target novelization of a story he put something in at the beginning which wasn't in the tv version that's kind of the the example i followed really um just to give you a sort of flavor of it or hint at something well gareth th thank you very much for your time today Lovely. thank you trevor it's been fascinating to talk about Sharda and your uh, Doctor Who and Sarah Jane related. Um, Thank you very much. Yes. I, I mean, there there are still plenty of other things that, that you've you've done for for Doctor Who and its spin-offs that we haven't even been able to touch on here. You've oh, written yes. plenty of short stories for Decalogues and short trips. So uh, you've uh, yes, I probably can't did... even remember those. So it's probably not <laughs> obvious. Yeah. Well, I yeah. hope you remember some of your big finish output, like the most excellent oh, yes. one yes, Doctor, yes, which um... well, I've got Clayton next to me, you see, so I can't forget. Oh, it gives you a bit of a prod <laughs> on the ribs again. But those were great, actually. We listened to those again recently for the first time in about 10 years. And, and we were both very, very surprised how good they were, actually. One Doctor is one of those, I suppose, comedic stories in Doctor Who. And it's always one that I want to return to, that if I want to have a bit of a laugh, uh, you know, good. with Doctor Who. So, yeah, Fan fantastic stuff. But, I mean, you've, you've done a myriad of work. For anyone that wants to check it out, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia page or something out oh, there which they can check out, yes. But, again, Gareth, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, and, uh, Enjoy the rest of your evening. I will, yes. Enjoy the rest of your day. Indeed, I will. Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 137 of the Doctor Who podcast. And guys, I have to say it's extremely strange saying hello to everybody half an hour into a podcast. There's nothing left for us to do. I know. Well, do you know what? There's never anything for us to do at the beginning of the podcast, but we somehow managed to style it out to 45 minutes. <laughs> I'll get the kettle on. Yeah, please. And uh, Tom, if you can dig out the hobnobs, that'd be really, really good. Absolutely fine by me. <laughs> Trevor, brilliant interview with Gareth. Um, certainly, I learned some new things. Um, I, I know very little about Sharda. I've not even seen uh, the VHS reconstruction. I don't even know if that's the right word um, for the release that they put out years ago now. 
Um, have you two you two seen that? Yes, yeah. It used to be um, one of very few Doctor Who videos that was at our local video shop, and uh, and yeah, I, I hoovered it up as a kid because I was a huge fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, and it was the first Adams Who that I, that I saw. I didn't know he'd done any more at that point. Uh, and and the bits that they have filmed are marvellous. There's some wonderful um, Adamsian ideas in there. Um, you know, the, the TARDIS appearing in uh, Professor Cronotus's study and just not being noticed by this bumbling old man as he potters back and forth. It's w- wonderful. It, it's a real shame that, that it was never finished. Until now. Well, I think like most fans, my first interaction with Sharda was via The Five Doctors. Um, because it was the only stuff that people hadn't generally seen that, that involved Tom Baker. So it meant that at least there was something new inside the show that uh, represented the fourth Doctor's tenure. So, yeah, I, 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 I've subsequently consumed different versions of it. The VHS I'd seen, um, the uh, the animation that was on the, with, featuring the eighth Doctor before I'd seen. Um, but, it, it, but it does... So, you know, it does strike me as being one of the great lost stories of Doctor Who, alongside the Dalek Master Plan and Power of the Daleks. Um, so yeah, I've, I've done my best to consume versions of it. I'm not sure uh, when I'll get around to reading the book, but I know that I will at some point. Yeah, I certainly will. Uh, and, and yeah, there's the possibility we might pull in a few more uh, fans from outside the Hooniverse with with it having Douglas Adams' name emblazoned on the front. Uh, you know, there's a possibility we might gain a few more people who who wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have, uh, have been interested in Doctor Who before. Well, that would be fantastic. And that certainly, I think, marries up with what Gareth wanted to achieve because he wasn't writing this exclusively for Doctor Who fans. He was writing it for everybody. And it, it's written in such a way that it's just a darn good story. It has to be said. And uh, despite not being familiar with what was actually filmed, I, I et up as I do with anything Big Finish produce, their version of Sharda with uh, Paul McGann and Lala Walt. And that was fantastic. Whether or not the story itself is is, is the best, uh, I'm not sure. But Sharda has kind of got this mythical reputation about being a fantastic end uh, to the series. And uh, I, I do wonder sometimes whether or not uh, Horns and Iron was the best story to go <laughs> out on. But having said that, if you were going to choose a particular writer... Uh, to to finish that off in print, then there's only one uh, that they could really approach because, as as Trevor said, Gareth knows season 17 inside out and he can evoke that era so brilliantly as as he's done in at least three novels uh, that Virgin printed years ago. And he does have, uh, you know, a, a Douglas Adamsy sort of style to his writing. I mean, I'm not saying it's it, it's it's not aping, it's not it's not a rip off, but it, it, there are parallels uh, with with the, the humour, the comedy, um, and of course, he, he took on quite a big job because even though they'd started filming um, stuff for for Sharda, in in typical Douglas Douglas Adams style, the the script was still. Uh, in a, a transient phase, I mean, the script that is that is left that is um, that he worked on um, to to put the book together was still not the finished article. I mean, Douglas Adams was terrified of deadlines. He said, uh, "I I love deadlines. I like the sound they make as they go whooshing by." That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Sounds Definitely. wonderful. I mean, th- this particular version of Sharda. I mean, it's available on um, audiobook as well, and it's unabridged. Now, um, Lala Ward reads this. Have a guess how many CDs there are, guys. You mean, you mean they're limited? Oh, I mean, uh, I see. So on the release, is it six? Nope. You said four, didn't you, Tom? Yeah. I think it's 11. <laughs> it's 11 hours in length, this, uh, this reading. So if you're going to go on a road trip, um, I mean, 
I'm not even certain if you could drive from London to Scotland um, in more than 11 hours unless you went a really weird way. But certainly I think if you're, if you're doing a road trip in America and you want to hear Lala Ward speaking to you for 11 hours, then this actually might be your only option. <laughs> but uh, I, I think certainly the way this book has um, been written, it's, it, it's brilliant just to hear Romana basically. Uh, voice her lines so eloquently um, and so true to her original character all these years after the story wasn't made. Mm, I look forward to that. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, I listen to my audio dramas uh, in the pub, uh, so I'll be sending Gareth Roberts the bill for my new liver. <laughs> or you could also just download it on your iPad. There's an iPad version of this as well um, for a very, very competitive price. And it has to be said, if you search around, that you can pick up this book in any version that you want for a very reasonable sum, I think. I tell you what, though, I'm a paperback boy. Uh, I, hardbacks, I mean, sometimes I rush and buy them, but they're a bit unwieldy. I like a book that you can roll up and put in your back pocket. Well, I'm sure this will be out in paperback at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and now, on to a man who needs no introduction. Who's that? Is it me? And so the thin veneer of professionalism that we spin like a diaphanous web of lies about our heads on the internet falls apart. <laughs> all through, his, all, all, all through um, your intro, yeah. And is <laughs> reconstructed via the magic of editing. And now to announce the winner of our Robert Shearman competition from way back, uh, Doctor Who podcast episode 130. And as I'm sure all of you will remember, the question was, the holy terror is A... A big Finnish audio drama starring Frobisher, a shape-shifting penguin. Or was it B, British Prime Minister David Cameron? Or was it C, a piece of voodoo Swiss cheese? And I can now announce that the correct answer was indeed A, it was a big Finnish audio drama starring the Sixth Doctor and Frobisher, a shape-shifting penguin. And the winner of the competition is... Tom. (laughs) Well, it's not, actually. I need Tom to provide a random number generator sound effect, please. Um, all right, um, my, my random uh, sound, sound effect will be uh, Sylvester McCoy speaking to his most constant companion. Excuse me. Hey! <laughs> okay, Tom, can you give me a number between 1 and 83, please? Ooh, I think it's time to go for 42. 42 is... Mr. Joel Turner, who lives in Arizona in the US of A, a signed copy of The Holy Terror is going to be making its way to you across the ponds. Congratulations. And thank you very much indeed, everybody, for sending in your competition entries. I was actually slightly tempted to include all of those who gave answer B as the correct answer as well. Hmm. It's a tough decision, but we need to abide by the truth on the DWP, because without the truth, what have we got? Precisely. We've got the next episode of the Doctor Who podcast coming up in a week's time uh, with Ian, Tom and Leeson. This time, what are you going to be talking about, guys? Uh, we will be talking about literary references in Doctor Who. Yes. Now, that's an interesting question because we, we, we have to somehow think about how we're going to talk about the very literary nature of the show. And I think we have a way in. So I'll be interested to get the feedback from some of our learned listeners. And that's, the, and that's certainly one of my points, that Doctor Who has the most learned listeners uh, of any podcast and of any fandom. I can't wait to discover if this is true. 
<laughs> well, there you go. Join Tom, Ian and Lisa next week to hear him discuss just that. Neither Trevor or I have read a book, so we're going to be taking the week off. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. So in the meantime, all that's left for us to say is bye for now. Cheerio! Right, see you later. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.